0: And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolfe, with international award-winning author Kim Stanley Robinson on the Coot Street Podcast!
1: Is that a great introduction or not, Stan?
2: <laughs> uh, uh, wow. Um, it went right up to the Clark a bit.
0: <laughs> I don't know. All I know is it's a ridiculous introduction, but Gary seems to like them, so we'll keep doing them. Welcome, I, Stan, I, back to the podcast. Uh,
2: Thanks. Great to be here.
0: And congratulations on the forthcoming
1: in July, Aurora, which is, um, here's an interesting question because I I know you got some odd reactions to to Shaman, uh, which, by the way, at least uh, one mutual friend of ours, Cecilia Holland, said she thinks may be your best novel so far. Um, But it didn't look like a science fiction novel to a lot of people. And so you're always returning to science fiction. You have these, uh, you you, you, you do Galileo, but then you do 2312. And it seems to me that every other novel that comes out, somebody in a review says, Kim Stanley Robinson has returned to science fiction.
2: Well, I I think I never leave science fiction. It's just that the the subgenres include alternative history, and it's always very historical. Mm -hmm. And prehistory has always been folded in because... Um, we don't really know what happened in prehistory by definition. Was, nothing was written down, and we, we we learned what we learned by way of the sciences of archaeology, and now all this genetic research and chemistry, etc. So, um, you know, the, all through science fiction's history, the, the prehistoric narrative, people like Silverberg or Golding, it's it's somehow associational in the science fiction field, and I always wanted to do one, but I never thought that I was leaving science fiction to do it. Although, that being said, it did feel different, because it was, although they were high-tech people, it was a very different high-tech.
1: Right, and you're, but, very, and you're very much constrained by anthropologi- by what anthropological data there was. I mean, you're you're dealing, for example, in that novel, with real cave paintings uh, that we can look at pictures of, at least.
2: Yeah, that was a beautiful thing. It was really um, there for me, the evidence that we had, the cave paintings to look at, um, it made for a different writing experience, and also when I realized that they didn't have writing, that uh, my narrator had to be telling the story, it changed my style. I had to go back and rewrite it and basically tell it to the page. And so it doesn't read to me like my other books, and indeed the, the audio book of, of uh, Shaman is really an extraordinary thing because this this guy, uh, Graham Malcolm, who read it just did a, an, a wonderful job, and I was able to hear it as if I hadn't written it written it. Hmm. So it it blew my mind. It was a beautiful experience. And the whole thing was great. And and just, it felt different from science fiction, but it also, it was also often kind of like one of those Jack Vance or uh, crashing on a foreign planet and having to make do kind of uh, science fiction um, planetary romance. Mm -hmm. So um, oftentimes I'd get echoes of that too. And the same kind of buzz, even though, presumably, people really did what, uh, I mean, somebody painted those caves, and they had to be living a life that was vaguely similar to what I described. So um, it was truly historical fiction, but uh, science fiction keeps coming into things, and I'm a huge science fiction patriot, as you know, and I'm always just thinking, can I tick off every single subgenre, you know, before I'm done? And so, go ahead, Gary.
0: Go ahead. Jonathan, you go ahead. Just say, uh, what, having written 2312 and having completed Shaman, brought you to Aurora then?
2: Well, I've been helped by talking things over with Tim Holman, um, who has just been a great editor for me with these three books. And he says they make a kind of intellectual case for um, what we might become. It depends on what how we became what we are. So that's Shaman. And you go 300 years out, and I seem to be making a case there that the solar system is our neighborhood and is a viable space for human beings, but um, there's some throwaway lines in 2312, and throughout the rest of my work, people are always leaving on starships, and then the story um, says goodbye to them. And so I said, I gave him a, a menu of possibilities for my next novel, and he just immediately put his finger on them. The Starship story, which was in the middle of the pack, and which kind of startled me, but I think he was right again because um, this then tests out that assertion can we get outside the solar system or are the stars too far away? And so that was what brought me to this particular book.
0: Well, that's, uh, go ahead, Jonathan. I was just I like, I is, is testing science fictional ideas. With real science, a fundamental thing that you want to do. I mean, I see a lot in the methodology of Aurora in what happened with Red Mars. You know, it changed. It was a generation of books that changed how we looked at Mars and that kind of intrasolar system uh, future. And I can see in Aurora a similar kind of approach. Is that something that's that's deliberate?
2: Yes, it is. Uh, uh, that being said, I, I want to do uh, add that I. Follow my ideas, and if the idea comes in for something bizarre, like Galileo's dream, which involves time travel, mm. um, then and I like the idea, then I'll follow it. And the fact that time travel can never make sense and, and breaks laws of physics and brings you right into the heart of paradox immediately and without escape, if I like the idea, I'll follow it anyway. So I don't have a program here. But I do have a tendency, I can tell, that uh, testing out older science fiction ideas with newer scientific information is something science fiction is always doing. And it seems that I've been lucky a couple of times in that before Mariner and Viking, we just didn't know anything about Mars compared to after. Mm -hmm. And after that, we had this whole planet uh, given to us. And uh, you could do the Mars story again in in sort of hyper-realist detail. And that's what I did. Well... We know a little bit more about starships than we did back during the great starship novels. And the, the the ramjet, for instance, this idea that we could really zip around the galaxy and get up to 99% light speed and, and then slow down just by uh, gathering in random atoms for fuel as we passed along, that enabled the, the 1960s uh, space operas or galactic science fiction and made it seem plausible. Then we learned that ramjets won't work and Mm-hmm. And and in terms of my Starship novel, the main things that I think I've brought to this are the increasing knowledge that we have that we are not independent beings, but our little biomes that are, you know, 80% of the DNA inside our bodies is not human DNA. So, once we've learned that stuff about our bacterial load, um, the, the notion that we could g- get into a spaceship and then travel for centuries in the slow motion Starship version... Um, sub-light speed, I mean, then you get um, real serious questions about uh, ec- ecology. And that's just the first step along the way of new issues to bring up. That's And there are old issues that were never explored either. So. Well, that's
1: what I mean, and this is one of the things I've seen happen um, certainly uh, in, in 2312, and going back all, I suppose going back all the way to the California Trilogy, is is this habit of asking questions that the classic science fiction didn't think to ask at the time, and one of the things which I, and I don't think this is really giving anything away in, in the novel, but it's it's common sense, that that I'd never thought that, of course, viruses and bacteria are going to evolve at a quicker rate than, than humans are in an enclosed environment, and that's a problem.
2: Yeah. This, I think, is a relatively new uh, discovery in ecology, and indeed the... The, I have uh, a husband-wife, uh, pair of ecologists living across the street from me who are good friends, and I just go over there with a bottle of wine and ask them questions and keep my laptop up. And sometimes a couple hours will pass where they get more and more down the rabbit hole because they're not used to speculating. Yeah. Um, although there's a fair amount of speculation it is because ecology is such a complex and confused science. There's too many factors. There's no chance of doing isolated experiments, so that many people call ecology almost as much an art as a science. But they were the ones that began to um, contemplate the idea of a closed biological life support system and how how big it would have to be for it to um, stay healthy. And they began to expand and expand and expand until they concluded that maybe Earth itself was not big enough. (laughs) <laughs> so then, the starship began to look way too small, uh, being a, a, a trillion times smaller than Earth. Your your standard starship is literally a trillion times smaller than Earth. So, mm. um, new problems will crop up, and that for me is always a great story opportunity.
1: Although one of the things that doesn't happen, um, because I was recently looking at some old generation starship things, the, and the idea that that in a, in a period of Seven or eight generations, which is I guess about the period of uh, that Aurora takes place over at least yeah getting there that this this idea, which I know Brian Aldous was guilty of that, that humans could somehow devolve in that period uh, seems to be another thing which is dramatically useful but not really very likely even by the standards of nineteen i think fifty nine or sixty when Aldous wrote starship
2: well that 's an awfully great novel. Um- I would say Heinlein's universe was a great start and interesting and stuck in 1940s science and in Heinlein's own attitudes, right. but still a dang good story. And then um, all this, and then um, the incredible achievement of Gene Wolfe in the Book of the Long Sun mm-hmm. and then the Book of the Short Sun, um, there you all you can do is is uh, tip your hat and say that's one of the greatest novels ever written and it happens to be a multi-generational starship novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was aware of all those, uh, of course, and um, I just decided that there's another story to be told there that doesn't have to be as uh, long and magnificent as the Wolf novel, which is really, you know, like if, if science fiction is Manhattan, then then that book by Wolf is one of these stupendously gigantic skyscrapers that will always, you know, right. dominate, dominate its part of the skyline. But there is a different story to be told there that, that follows up on the realist problem of, of could it work at all.
1: Right. Yeah. The other thing which I thought was interesting, and you mentioned um, having to find a different narrative voice for Shaman, and, uh, and going back to 2312, you found a, a different kind of narrative voice sort of out of uh, Dos Passos and Brunner, really, a modernist voice that's sort of cut-up effect. Yes. Here, and here you have what, what strikes me as being one of the most fascinating and mordantly funny parts of the novel is that it's partly a novel about a computer trying to learn how to tell a story.
2: Yes, thank you for that. I uh, that gave me immense pleasure because uh, you know how do what's the algorithm for writing a novel? Well, immediately you just throw yourself on the ground in despair because <laughs> there isn't one. And um, it was a joy to uh, try to think through the AI problem as uh, once the AI is commanded to keep a narrative of the trip with all its particulars. This is what a uh, computer people would call uh, loss lossy compression. <laughs> and and that is a nasty problem um in computer science and it is for novelists also so i was loving that part and i, I must say that these last four novels I, I galileo's dream was told by cartophilus who was a time traveler from the future who was you didn't weren't aware he was the narrator till he in, in, inserted himself near the end then as you say 2312 was the dos pasos um modernist um wiki, you might say And then Shaman was the third wind, this kind of ghostly presence from the Paleolithic. I don't even know how to characterize the third wind, but it wasn't me, and it was the narrator. And now we have the the ship itself as the narrator of most of Aurora. And I've been getting a huge amount of pleasure out of these exercises, and I think actually it's making me more um, uh, flexible as a a narrator myself, since I'm always playing... uh, My narrators are characters also and I'm trying to inhabit different characters. And the, the fun of that, I think, actually is helping the books a lot, too.
1: Does it there's give you a sort
0: a of... Sorry, no, we can say, Gary.
1: Uh, just, one, just, just a quick uh, footnote to that. that there's a, There are some funny bits in all of your books, which I think people overlook too much, but one of my favorite lines in the book is this, this ship, this computer, is trying to figure out how to tell the story that, Debbie wants it to tell. And it starts listing facts and figures and statistics and the number of biomes and the number of cultures represented. And finally Debbie says to it, it's not all about you. (laughs) (laughs) I
2: had forgotten that. That's a good
0: one. That's a great one. Well, I was gonna say, I mean, first of all, for people listening to the podcast who've not read the novel, we should just sort of give you a quick background and say that somewhere Three hundred years or so years after events in twenty three twelve, they're not necessarily in the same timeline, roughly kind of developmentally speaking, a generation starship mission is sent off to Tau Ceti, and Aurora opens some you know just before the arrival of the, of the starship at at its destination and deals with its arrival at at its destination and events thereafter, and we do see a lot. Of, you know, in the lead up to it And this is the part, I guess, we were talking about, Gary, about Where uh, Devi, Devi who's the, effectively the chief engineer on the starship Gives the AI that's running the starship The task of writing Aurora, basically, for it um, That's kind of the, the context that we're, ta- we're talking in And it does make for an interesting I mean, I, I was curious for you, for you I mean, you've written an omniscient narrator before But have you been an omniscient narrator Writing an omniscient narrator before?
2: Well, but not omniscient. This is the problem. In fact, uh, the computer doesn't know how to compress data and so um, eventually it plumps down for uh, what you might more call camera eye point of view in just reporting what it sees in summary point of view. So it sort of recapitulates the history of the novel and starts out in a mm. almost Daniel Defoe tale-telling but always from the outside of the characters' heads. And uh, the first person involved is just the ship itself, but nobody else has ventured inside in, you know, in Jane Austen, free indirect style. And it, it, it mostly stays that way outside of the heads of the characters, which I never do myself. I usually weave in, Um, in kind of Philip K. Dick style where every scene is inside one character's mind and all the rest of them are seen from the outside third person limited we would call it in the workshops and in this case I had to do camera eye point of view for the whole novel except for if it was uh, third person limited the one that I was inside was actually first person and was the computer itself so in narrative terms this was strange but it definitely was not omniscient because Mm. the the computer doesn't know when anybody's thinking and is mystified as to why people are acting so bizarrely.
0: How was it evolving ship itself as a character? Because, I, mean, I came to love fun. ship as, as, as the book evolves. I mean, it, it, ship mm-hmm. becomes a character that you uh, warm to very greatly th- through the process of the book. Well,
2: thanks for that. I I, I feel the same, and I feel also that it was a uh, uh, each chapter that the uh, ship narrates it gets better at it and more more fluid more mm. willing to talk about itself and you could imagine it correlating more powers kind of recursively and becoming simply uh, smarter as a narrator at least but maybe also it keeps wondering about consciousness is what it's doing uh, the equivalent of consciousness itself so there's a fair amount of consciousness uh, um, uh contemplation um and that's an interesting thing to think about in a novel and is sort of the computer's um, self-reflective uh, part of it. And that's, I think, why you get more fond of the computer as it rises to a higher level of self-awareness anyway. Um, because it doesn't imitate a human brain in any way, uh, but it's putting out a string of sentences in English, it's it gets really confusing. And I didn't want to fall down the rabbit hole of being of a philosophical novel that explores that too, too deeply because there's still the, the ship's story to be told, the people's story to be told, and a lot of activity uh, around Tau So I, I couldn't go completely off the, the rails there, but nevertheless, in the end of the novel, there's a period of time where it must be um, nearly 60 or 70 pages where the ship is necessarily the, the one and only voice and only subject and uh without going any further into why nevertheless that's kind of one of my um set pieces like like the big walks in the other novel yeah. this one is a a, a big uh, traverse by the ship
0: mm-hmm.
1: you like those uh, wander yard kind of things because the uh your main character basically spends 3 years wandering around the various biomes and and shaman begins with your main character going out on a on a kind of walkabout. um and it's uh, it's 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 a very in some ways a very traditional way of introducing the variety of settings you have in your novels.
2: Yes, I I do I like it and I use it a lot. Um, and in in Mars, Nergal makes his runs yeah. around Mars, and in Green Mars and Blue Mars, and um, you know it's becoming and and John Boone in Red Mars. So it, it's it's kind of recognizable. And you're right, it's a tradition. Uh, but it's super useful of course when you're trying to expose a world to the readers and it's a little tricky because in a way it is just a wanderjahr it doesn't really have a plot or a problem um the character it's uh, that part of the bildungsroman where the where the young characters growing up but a lot just by seeing people and interacting with them and having random um in uh events occurring to them which in young people can be learning experiences but it isn't a standard plot so I've I've had to learn to summarize those. They, you definitely don't want to dramatize a wander yard. you want to uh, compress it mm-hmm. uh, to make it work right.
1: Okay. I guess another thing that strikes me as interesting about um, the various aspects, we were talking about the computer, for example, uh, and I, it always fascinates me about your work as somebody who is who really knows science fiction well and who knows when you're doing Heinlein and knows when you're doing Asimov. and knows and, and you did a doctoral dissertation on Phil Dick, um, but there's a point at the com- there's a certain point in the novel, uh, without giving any details, where the computer essentially makes decisions on behalf of the humans, for their own good. And yeah, and the, and the story that reminded me of was the last of, um, the last of Asimov's robot stories, and iRobot called the Evitable Conflict, uh, because Asimov's argument always was well, if you have these robots uh, or computers sufficiently and cautiously programmed, maybe if they took over running the world it wouldn't be so bad. He was really a a technologist and that that question sort of bobs up here in this part of the novel where you're thinking, okay, a, a, a couple of generations of science fiction readers and movie viewers have seen how the computer, they've seen the Terminator movies, they figure, okay, the minute the computer starts making decisions on its own, the game is up. And on the other hand, you have the notion that, wait a minute, it's making a better decision than any human would have made in that particular situation.
2: Yes. I, I, it occurs to me that these, uh, this artificial intelligence worry that we have, like the singularity or, or AI taking over, mm-hmm. that if we already, that's already happened. And we could call it the rule of law or <laughs> science or, or government. So that um, abstracted from all of us as a system that we've built and then agreed to uh, live by is a government and the rule of law. And the rule of law is really good for us. Um, it's the only thing that keeps us from uh, getting snarled up in all of the conflicts that we have. And, and if people abide by the rule of law, then it, it crucially depends on whether the laws are good or bad, of course. But if you've got good laws, and everybody abides by them, then, you know, we've got seven billion people on this planet and they aren't all killing each other, which is quite an accomplishment when you think about it. So I've often thought that, and I I think Asimov was really uh, a smart man and an interesting thinker. And I see an early dichotomy, in fact, in American science fiction between him and Heinlein, and I've always been an Asimovian in that split. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and I want to say, this is um, a little bit of a, a minor touch, but it's so literary and SF, that the reason this book is called Aurora is because the planet that they uh, land on is called Aurora. And that's because Asimov in The Naked Sun, that uh, sun was Tau Ceti, and the planet was named Aurora. Ah. So um, <laughs> I have made a little tribute. Uh, and I think it's very... It's the kind of thing that I myself didn't know, but when you look up um, the ar- the Wikipedia article on oh. Tau Ceti, um, it, it mentions that it was the sun in The Naked Sun, which I don't think Asimov makes a big deal about. So there's no reason for anybody to know this, and, and it's a very much of a minor literary point, but it's a little bit of an homage to Asimov, to uh, name my planet that. Hmm. <laughs>
0: It
1: strikes me there are a couple of characters, though, that look a little bit like Heinlein characters. You mentioned Universe, and there's a point when, in, early in the novel, when um, when, it, when, our uh, protagonist, or at least the, the, ma- the main point of you character, Freya, is on her walkabout here, and she meets a young man whose name is, is it Ewan? Am I... Uh, who, who,
2: who? I think Ewan. Look, you know, Ewan, Ewan McGregor. He shows her
1: secret parts of the ship. He shows her how to get into parts of the ship where the computers can't track you. He's fu- he's performing the same function as the mutant or the mutie boy does in in Heinlein's universe of showing you parts of the ship you didn't know were there.
2: Yeah, that's right. I think that's a. I think that has to come up in any starship novel. They are big, big, big um, machines or um, habitats, and they are going to have corridors and um, back corridors and side pockets. And it's true in the Wolf. Um, uh, Book of the Long Sun also, mm-hmm. and and I think it's necessarily true that there's going to be a certain percentage of characters that are going to do that, and that Heinlein understood that instantly the moment he saw the situation. Um, yeah, so that too is a, I don't think you can avoid it. The, those guys really um, had a good grasp on story and a good grasp on these situations that were relatively new. I don't know if there's a multi-generational starship story before universe, I mean, there always seems to be precursors that surprise you, like even out of the 19th century or whatnot. But in this case, I'm, I don't know of any, and certainly Heinlein's universe was the first big articulation it of it. It was the so first
1: one that really hit. There, was, there yeah. was, one in the 30s, which I could probably find in a moment, because I remember writing about it. Um, but uh, but it certainly didn't have the impact. I mean, Simek had done one, Van Vogt had done one. Um, the um, Lawrence Manning's The Living Galaxy, 1934, was apparently the first one in Pulp Science Fiction.
2: Okay. Well, for sure, CIMAC was always filled with great ideas right away, uh-huh. um, but a but universe made the splash, and after that it was the template to play off of. Um, one thing I want to add about my planet, Aurora, is that we now know that Tau Ceti has uh, four really giant planets, and I don't mean... Uh, Jupiter size, I mean, well, they, they range between what they call large Earths or, or small Neptunes huh. in size, and so the gravity would be crushing, because they've got them perfectly calibrated, and you can go to the Wikipedia article on Ceti and get ratings for all of them. So I went down to NASA Ames, and I talked to Chris McKay and his crew about this, and I said, are we sure that these planets are the the weights that have been given to them, the masses? And they said, well, yeah, as sure as you can be. But then one of them said, and this is what I had to immediately grasp on, is that it could be that a planet and its moon are being conflated because we don't have that kind of detail. Huh. So some of these big planets could actually be a big planet, like a, like a small Neptune, yeah. with a moon that would be as big as the Earth or close to it, and those two would be smooshed together in the calculation. So that's what I went with because I don't believe humans would ever want to deal with anything more than about 1.5 G, Uh, Even that would be grotesque, but uh, beyond that, impossible. So uh, I decided to assume that one of the big planets around Tau City has a moon that is like 83% of Earth, I think I put it, Mm. and that would mean that it would probably be tidally locked to that planet like our moon is tidally locked to us to the earth mm-hmm. and uh, i tell you i had never contemplated what it mean meant to be tidally locked and i never thought about our moon uh, living on it in fact i'm going to write a moon novel because of this Good. because of these thoughts because if you're on the the earth facing side of the moon it just, the Earth just sits there in the sky and never moves at all. So this notion that we have of Earthrise, that we have from the Apollo capsules <laughs> circling around the Moon and seeing the Earth's rise over the Moon, if you're on the surface of the Moon itself in one position, that never happens. Yeah, Earth, The Earth just sits up there in the same spot in the sky all the time, and it goes through its, its um, phases so that the Earth will go from full to uh, new, and... Uh-huh. Uh, in the sky, but it'll always be in the same spot of the sky above you doing that, so you could use it as a kind of clock. And these were many of the uh, new thoughts that I had when I was contemplating what it would be like for my people once they did get on their planet, which is in fact a moon, but, mm. you know, what, what can you say? At that point, the terminology is not the important part.
0: No. I have been loosely sort of, you know, vaguely curious. Is there any continuity through Red Mars 2312 to Aurora at all? Or is that just that they happen to sit in periods in, of time?
2: It's the latter. They just sit in periods of time. I, I don't like uh, future histories that cohere. Um, I think it's constraining and uh, unimportant. So I've never tried to make any of my novels connect with any of the others. In fact, I've always deliberately put in something that um, that wrecks the connection and then, what connections there are are like games that are, are a little crazy, and hopefully, people are, will indulge me. But things like the computers are always named Pauline, or um, the liars are always named Frank. I mean, these are the kind of games that I'm playing in terms of continuity. <laughs> but but I don't. I want each one to have its own history.
1: But you must have readers that try to make those connections that. You know, in, in Blue Mars there are things that look a lot like the things that show up on 2312 and so forth and so on.
2: Yes, it's confusing because I've stolen for myself ruthlessly. <laughs> uh, but I want to always to make a new history where, the if you look at the histories described, they don't quite ever match up, and that gives me a chance to um, speculate. Uh, in a new way about what might happen starting from now, because now I've been doing this for so long that when you start from now and try to speculate clearly, the difference between 1984 and, you know, 2014 is just gigantic Mm. in uh, in terms of what might happen and what's important.
0: Hmm. I'm curious as well. I mean, when I read this book, I have to say, not only did I love it, but it It challenged a lot of what I wanted to see as a worldview, as a science fiction reader. I wanted to be optimistic about interstellar travel, about getting off the planet, all those sorts of things. And to to an extent, I mean, 2312 really is very optimistic about those sort of things. It it gives us an enormous canvas in a solar system to occupy, to live in, to make a lived world out of. To me, Aurora, wherever its story goes within its own plot, shuts the door on us uh, on on life outside the solar system to some extent
2: yes well um that's true that's the point that the book is trying to bring up in people's minds if you think of the distance between the sun and earth you know one astronomical unit if you shrink that down to a meter um then the distance from sun to tau Ceti is 800 kilometers. So what I think science fiction has done is systemically lie about how big the universe is and how big our galaxy is. And the distance between the solar system and even the nearest stars um, is is simply vast, superhumanly vast, Mm -hmm. such that we, and if you accept the speed of light, which I do, as a Limiting speed, mm-hmm. then um, uh, we're out of luck. the 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 rest of the stars are too far away. It's in, they're interesting, but they aren't accessible. And so, um, if people try to go to even the nearest ones, then the you you need to contemplate what they have face, and that's what Aurora does. Uh, and um, I I definitely am trying to bring up problems that haven't been seriously thought of before because most of science fiction playing that game, first of all, it's been a uh, fun to do because it's such a gigantic story space. So that it, yeah. um, sopa- uh, space opera is a kind of fantasy uh, yeah. uh, fiction with settings that you can see in the night sky, and it's very exciting, but it's still a fantasy. And then the people who have said, well, but we really could do it are mostly physicists who are thinking about propulsion. And it's true that we probably could get an object going to one tenth the speed of the, of light, and therefore a couple hundred years later, we could be to Tau Ceti, and probably we could stay alive for the two hundred years. They they the, deep thought has gone into rocket propulsion, and to a certain extent, to deceleration, which is an important part of the equation um, that my book also explores. But. Um, they haven't thought as much about uh, biology, ecology, sociology, mm-hmm. and human psychology. And on those fronts, it gets—you uh, have to um, eventually conclude that maybe the galaxy is a space for a fantasy, like like myth, mm-hmm. or or it's like the rest of fantasy literature. I mean, if I tell you, look, magic is never going to work, that isn't going to keep you from enjoying. Uh, Lord of the Rings, or the rest of fantasy <laughs> literature. You just accept it as a story convention. And I think people have already halfway thought that about space opera, but I had a story to tell out of uh, pushing the question as a realism.
1: I think to some extent the the idea of, I've been thinking about, this classic definition of fantasy being the impossible and science fiction being allegedly the possible. And when did when did we decide what was impossible and what was possible, and, and the generation starship is one of two classic solutions to uh, to being able to get out of the solar system. The other one is is magic, basically. It's it's reclaiming a kind of magic wand for for science fiction. It can be a warp drive, it can be Fred Pohl's gateway or collapsars in the Forever War. In other words, almost always it's placed there by some conveniently advanced alien civilization which enables us to just zip into this uh, black hole and zip out somewhere else in the universe. It strikes me that that's essentially a fantasy device.
2: Yeah, and, um, you know, we do have a very mysterious universe where maybe there are ten dimensions, and black holes having sucked everything in, it seems like white holes might be elsewhere, which implies wormholes, and the mathematics can be done. But it, human beings and their own machinery surviving such a transit is definitely a kind of magic wand waving. Um, and, and so we want those stories because we can see the galaxies out there. We have an excellent idea. And we can calculate the weight of the black hole at the center of our own Milky Way. And we know so much about it uh, from astronomy that it's a, it's a hunger in us to go explore it in person. But um, if you keep a sense of size then the sublimity of the whole thing is actually kind of magical in its own way or, or marvelous to uh, contemplate. It's an example of the sublime. And also, the idea that we could go somewhere else is a moral hazard, as they put it in economics. The the thing that you see in a, in a really dumb movie like Interstellar, that, uh, but it's common in science fiction, that, oh, well, if we wreck the Earth, then um, we can always go somewhere else. Or mm-hmm. Sokovsky's idea that Earth is humanity's cradle, but uh, the cradle no one's destined to stay in their cradle forever, and that humanity was destined for the stars. That's a 19th century idea that it turns out is not true, or won't work, probably, or this Uh is the case that I'm making. So um, it's definitely worth reconsidering, because these are old truisms that can make us careless with the Earth itself. And once you notice that there is no planet B, that even Mars, as great as it is, is maybe 10,000 years away from being habitable, um, and won't serve as a replacement, Earth, no matter what, then you might be more careful with Earth itself. So there's there's a political or moral case to be made to... Uh, it, science fiction doesn't want to be lying to people. Um, and, and by saying, oh, this is possible fiction rather than impossible fiction, mm-hmm. once you do that, you get into the realm of Scientology or the other scams that have come out of science fiction, you know, frozen heads and wow. immortality. And there were various... Um, science fiction ideas that if you take them as as fantasy excuses for great storytelling that's all very well and you wouldn't want to not have the space operas of Ian Banks for instance um, because they're fantastic but um, the idea that humanity is destined for the stars is one that really needs a a stake through the heart so that we can think harder about uh, sustainability here
0: well, I was going to say that, I mean, <clears throat> one of the reasons that the, I think the book had as much impact on it, on me as it did is that I read it immediately after reading uh, Paolo Bacigalupi's new science fiction thriller, uh, The Water Knife, which basically mm-hmm. paints a very clear por- portrait of a near-future Earth that is being uh, debilitated by mismanagement. And to look at it and then say, well, okay, in The Water Knife we see a world that's been dr- drastically mismanaged, we have a meme in science fiction that says, get off the planet, we have to get off the planet, it's where our true future is, it's where our destiny lies, and then you read a book like Aurora that says, yes, but, you know, it really does beg the question about whether, as you say, some of that other science fiction actually is as responsible as it should be, because this really does say that there's a lot to be said and a lot to be done, but at the end of the day, this is where we have to live because this is where we evolved and this is where we we fit the best and anywhere else in the universe will not have that same impact or value.
2: Yeah, we we just can't get there. Um, Alpha Centauri is the closest star system and we already know that it, it's an M star with some, some uninhabitable little planets around it. At four light years away it's mm-hmm. still a gigantic distance and so Um, I think it's valid to take the point out of 2312 that the solar system is our neighborhood and home. It's big, it's various, it's beautiful, it's accessible. It's not replacement for Earth, because as they say there, Earth is always going to be the center of the human story, but it is most wonderful. accoutrement to a Terran civilization. And and it's all we need. If When you look at Saturn, when you um, look at Neptune and the rest of the solar system from, you know, inside Mercury to outside Neptune, uh, all the way out to the Cooper belt, you've got this um, gigantic uh, 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 inhabitable space that is quite gorgeous and beautiful. And if you were to g- manage to get anywhere else, you would be getting to places just like the solar system. So in a way, the, the point is deeply lost. I think maybe the underlying psychological urge in some Freudian sense is the urge for immortality, the the disagreement, the disagreeableness of, of, of contemplating death and thinking that you have to die. And so then you think, well, if, if I have to die, okay, I, I seem not to be able to escape it. But if humanity doesn't have to die, then at least I can um, rest uh, peaceful in that knowledge. And then when we have the... Um, Um, awareness forced on us that um, in fact humanity itself is just another species of life and is likely to have its terminus but in any case can't cruise through the galaxy that this is a shock it's like when I told my my older son when he was four years old Mm. when he learned somewhere that the earth was that the Sun was going to you know go Nova or whatever it's going to do in five billion years and uh, my boy just burst into tears. He was really distraught. But I'm thinking that this is an originary uh, um, you know unhappiness that things won't go on forever. But, but we got to live with it because it's reality itself. I mean, reality itself is mortal because now we know about the big Bang and the, the big <laughs> dissipation. And so um, ideas of immortality are just, uh, again, you get into fantasy literature there. And and it's better just to face the situation and enjoy the situation as it is. So that is one thing I I would want to say, without spoiling any of the surprises of Aurora, Mm. is that there is a solution and that Aurora has a kind of um, uh, uh, what you might call a happy ending or a a resolution that one can uh, take a lot of hope out of.
0: I
1: certainly. Sorry, go ahead, uh, Gary. uh, Just uh, again in parentheses. Uh, again, without spoiling anything, it's not the solution that you expect at the beginning of the novel, and it's not even the problem you expect at the beginning of the novel.
2: Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> well put. Yeah. I, I, I'm proud of Aurora because it has some plot twists that I think are quite uh, surprising. And, and I also, uh, eventually, my characters are faced with what I can call, with some confidence, a new science fiction problem with an actual solution and um, I've checked it with my NASA friends to make sure that it actually works because as an English major I'm a little um, daunted by the notion that I had a new idea (laughs) 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 but I I I think I did and so when people read Aurora they'll see what I mean and I think it makes for quite a good scene too Um, although the computer being the narrator means that there's uh, double and triple levels involved that I hope are funny as well as uh, suspenseful.
1: But the cu- computer does learn to narrate. Your, your comment about its being a kind of micro history of, of, of novelistic narration made a lot of sense the minute you said it because the computer is a very humane narrator by the time it has figured out what a narrative is supposed to be.
2: Yeah, thank you. I, I wanted to work that out. I, I went from a camera eye point of view to free and direct style to a stream of consciousness over the course of the computer's history, and it was sort of necessarily following the action. I, I had a great time at the beginning with the, when the computer was still fumbling around. I, I had the computer list every single person on board the ship in order. And there were 2,200 people on the ship, approximately. And so the list, it took me about a week to compile it uh, with you know various dictionaries of baby names and the like, nationally correct to each one of the biomes, et cetera, et cetera. And it took up, I don't know, perhaps 10 or uh, 15 pages of text. And I turned it in to my editor, and I said, look, maybe this is a little too long. And he said, yes, that is too long. And not only that, but imagine the audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> the audio book reading of names list might have lasted maybe 15 minutes, and, um, and, it, and it's just a list of, of uh, exotic names from all over Asia. And so um, we cut it down to, um, I forget how many, it's actually still quite long, and then Devi cuts off the computer and says, please don't do that. Mm-hmm. So she serves as editor. Yeah. But eventually the computer does get quite good, and by the end of the book, um, it's in a kind of bravura mode, because... Um, what's interesting is to contemplate this idea of, of love as a kind of paying attention so that the computer comes to a sense of what it's up to and a sense of self-awareness that it always questions because it has no idea really what human consciousness feels like from the inside. That's hard for all of us mm-hmm. and the computer is permanently alienated in by being a computer but um, but the, but but what? what love might consist of just in terms of behavior, so that you get to some kind of behavioral sense of it, um, the the computer ends up with theories. And uh, so that, I think, was a really nice um, evolution, especially in novelistic terms, where you have a main character, in effect, right. that learns things through the course of the novel.
0: By necessity, because you're, you're writing the novel, rewriting the novel, editing the novel... You go through the phase where you have thought of the initial idea. You, you've become accustomed to what are the surprises of the story, I guess. Um, how do you feel or hope that readers who, once they've you know, read the novel themselves, and come back to reread it, will, enc- what will what do you hope they'll encounter? Because the surprises that we're respecting in the, in the podcast will be surprises no longer. In fact, anybody possibly picking up Aurora at Christmas will have a chance to find out that X happens and Y happens and whatever else. And no longer are those the great rewards of someone who is fortunate enough to read the book without that that information. What do you hope they'll take away from that? Yeah, that's a
2: good question. That's a good question. And I I guess what I would hope for has to lie at the level of the sentence and the scene. um, So that even if you know vaguely where the story is going... You don't know the how or the why, and you don't know what the computer or whatever the narrator is is going to say next. You don't know what the characters are going to say next. And um, at that level, that's really where novels live or die. Because otherwise, they're just cases being made that could be, in fact, and this is one of the conundrums that that confuses the the computer. That you could tell the story in um, hundred words or maybe three hundred words. I could compress it down and tell the story. So why the the three hundred pages, the four hundred and fifty pages? It has to be interesting on the level of of enjoying novels do two things for us at once, and that's why they're so beautiful. One, it's telepathy. You're inside somebody else's head, and in this case, mostly a computer's head, but also Freya, I suppose, as the protagonist. Um, And then two, you're an anthropologist, and you get to see what is it like for a culture that is not your culture. So, you know, the Incas uh, at Machu Picchu, or um, under a dome on Mars, or inside a spaceship set of biomes, What was it like for that culture to what were their habits? What was daily life like? So uh, we like novels because they give us daily life somewhere else. And then we also like them for telepathy that were inside other people's heads, which is very hard to do in any other way. And movies aren't good at that, and novels are. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, for plot, for story, like what, what happens next. And I'm thinking now that plot is when daily life goes wrong. So um, this is, I'm understanding in a way that's helping me with my new book that what we love in detective novels, well, say a norm novel is like this. Mm-hmm. You have daily life, and and Shaman is like this. Daily life, 150 pages, and you're thinking, well, of course, like I could read an anthropology book. I need a story here mm-hmm. because I'm reading a novel. And then suddenly the wife gets kidnapped, and it's a desperate plot from then on. You're ripping through the pages to get to the end, maybe staying up all night. And we love that in novels. So the two things are not quite the same. And what I'm loving in the idea of the detective novel series is that most of those novels begin with the plot, something has gone wrong. And as the detective figures out why it went wrong, um, they have to reveal what daily life was like beforehand. So you immediately get your plot handed to you on a plate and your suspense from the get-go, like why did this happen? And in the figuring out of the of the mystery, you are also unpacking daily life as it existed beforehand. And like, say, it's in Palestine or it's in a Roman um, monastery during the you know Dark Ages, um, the daily life will maybe even explain why the crime happened. That only in that culture would the crime have happened because of some particular anthropological rule in that culture that that caused the the criminal to do what they did. So um, I'm using this new understanding of, of what we want out of novels to kind of construct a, uh, my my next book, which will be a kind of a detective story, I guess.
1: One of the points that, uh, oh, I, I want to hear more about that, but one of the points that was made to me once by a, a mystery writer, as a matter of fact, was that one of the key differences between, between science fiction and mysteries in terms of formula literature is that that Divergence from reality, the divergence from normality, the puzzle, the uh, something is interrupted daily life. And a mystery mm-hmm. is characteristically solved by returning to the order of things as they were before. Uh, the classic Agatha Christie mystery starts in an English village with no problems, something happens, it ends with an English village with no problems. In a science fiction story, when the puzzle is solved, the world is not necessarily the same as it was before.
2: Yeah, I, I, t- I think that's a real distinction between the two, and um, uh, you see, like in Simonon's uh inspector mcgray mysteries you know paris is never going to change and he's he's just holding the line or solving the crimes that paris throws up at him and i i guess what i would say as the solution because i as as always i want to do science fiction Mm -hmm. and the form of the detective novel i don't want that to take over the 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 tendency of science fiction to be transformative in its storyline so i guess what i'm going to want to do is have my um my detective be operating in the midst of a revolution. And no matter what happens in terms of the detective figuring things out, maybe the figuring of things out, I will hope to be actually a triggering of revolution. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And so try to have it both ways, but especially with an emphasis on the science fiction element of transformation. So that will be my hope.
1: It sounds fascinating. Is this going to be set in an interplanetary environment or on Earth?
2: Well, it's on Earth, I can tell you, um, um, because I don't think it'll hurt anything, to tell you that uh, this is a, a combination of my idea and Tim Holman's suggestions, and I'm so grateful to him. Um, I wanted to do a novel about global finance, and he shuddered and said, please, <laughs> no. And uh, <laughs> So I said, but wait, I want to, and he said, well, tell me more, and as I told him more, he got more enthusiastic, and he said, well, tell you what, please, put it in the drowned Manhattan that is briefly visited in 2312, and um, that's a good idea, that is a really excellent idea, because probably only 20 pages is devoted to it, or 30 in 2312, it's just a set piece, or one of many Uh, environments described in 2312, each more mind-boggling than the last. But as a setting on its own, um, you know, essentially uh, sea levels uh, having risen to a point where you've got a substantial part of Manhattan underwater, uh, that's a heck of a lot of water. That's a really different situation. And so uh, um, I thought it was a superb idea on Tim Holman's part, and I decided to pursue it. And so, I've been to New York now with my GPS device um, uh, turned on to find out how, what the elevation of every part of town is. And I've, <laughs> I've really been uh, having a lot of fun. It's, I've been on the hunt. And a lot of Manhattan is way too high. Um, you can't drown all of Manhattan. I can't not realistic.
1: the park will do okay, from what I understand.
2: Exactly, from Central Park North to uh, the cloisters at the north end of the island, there's a ridge of high land that cannot be drowned by the amount of water on this planet. Um, well, it could be if you dr- if you melted East Antarctica, but that's just not uh, viable. That's not going to happen. So I've I've postulated a 50-foot a sea level rise, which is absolutely astonishing wow. in its impacts. Um, and the more you think about it the more mind-boggling it is, but I will be writing fast and I'll get this idea out there before anyone else.
1: <laughs> well, this is an interesting thing because you were doing global warming and sea level problems uh, way back in the, um, uh, the Science in the Capital Trilogy and I gather from when we talked about it earlier that not all that science exactly works out according to latest research. The Gulf Stream isn't apparently going to stop, um, but nevertheless well, the, yeah. It was a novel which was a thrill, three novels, I should say, that that had spectacular special effects in them. If you look at them from one angle, if you look at them from another angle, it's a trilogy about National Science Foundation policy, which is the least exciting thing most novel readers would ever imagine.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, I, I may have taken it too far with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I will say this, though, um, uh, the Gulf Stream is, is slowing down, and, and so they're, they're once again worried that um, it doesn't have the force that it did, and they're thinking now, does it fluctuate on its own, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. so the questions have come in back into play on that one, but the other thing to say is that um, I have compressed the, the trilogy, 40, 50, 60, uh-huh. um, by 15%, and now it will fit into a single volume. And it's going to be released in November by Bantam and HarperCollins, UK, and it's going to be called Green Earth. Oh, really? So, yeah. I'm really happy. I think that in the squishing of it, this is maybe after my ship thinking about how to write a novel, um, that I, th- I wanted to um, dispense with detail in the 40, 50, 60 trilogy that is now known to everybody. hmm and I wanted to get it into a single volume, and I wanted to make it a faster read. And I think by cutting it by fifteen percent, which is just a general edit, I didn't yeah. remove much. I just uh, squeezed it. Um, I think it's more than fifteen percent better, if I can judge, which is hard for me to judge. But it seems to me that it it zooms along at a nicer um, pace than the original trilogy did. And um, the middle volume, I think, is substantially the same, but the Mm -hmm. first and third volume I squeezed pretty hard and and with good results, I think. So I'm super happy because I I think that uh, that was a kind of a warning track homer or a close but no cigar um, I made some choices in that trilogy that afterwards left me uncomfortable with it as one of my novels. Mm. But I, And it was fun to go back. I had this idea from Peter Matheson, you know, the great writer Peter Matheson yeah. who died last year. He took his Florida trilogy and he cut it from 1,500 words to 900 words and re-released it uh, 10 years later. And when I read that book in a bookstore, I was looking at it with his amazement and I thought you know what my climate trilogy needs the same treatment
1: huh.
2: so um, that's what I did
1: it's still going to be a long book though isn't it
2: yes it's still 900 pages or 800 pages depends on the font size <laughs> um, but at least it's not a trilogy people don't have to commit to that three book uh, commitment
0: right, exactly. do you view it as a new work no
2: no it's just a an, um, an abridgment or a compression yeah it's uh, very much the same. In fact, it will be boring for anybody that actually tries to take on the project of seeing what I did. They'll quickly conclude that I just did a kind of a, uh, a hopefully skillful uh, squeezing. Uh, it's a little embarrassing to admit that you can cut 15% out of a text and it's pretty much the same or better. But you know, And I don't think I can do that for any of my other novels. But the Climate Trilogy was, as you say, it was the NSF, it was the Bush years, it w- was climate change. There was, um, it was it was a domestic realist novel, which I'd never really tried before, with a little SF touch pushing it. And so I don't think I had my bearings in the way that I usually do. And I was really happy just to give it one more, one more whack, because I think it's better now.
1: Uh, it we'll be fascinated to look at it. I mean, one of the fascinating things about because, as you know, I was, I was actually teaching um, the middle volume in the trilogy last spring. And, uh, and to some extent, the references to politicians clearly are references to Bush-era politicians and their attitudes toward the environment. But in some ways, politicians in the several years since that original trilogy have gotten even weirder with their ideas <laughs> on the environment.
2: Yeah, it's true the um, pressure has been enormous in the States. Um, Sometimes I think that it was a bad mistake by Al Gore to be the front man for his movie, that he ought to have uh, produced it and maybe shoveled the money through third parties and not been an actor involved, because it polarized the the politics of the Clinton years, Mm -hmm. where the Republican Party, you can go back in the historical record and see the Republican Party in the late 1990s were not Uh, opposed to the idea of climate change, that that happened after the Al Gore movie, and in the years after that there's been increasing pressure from the Republican Party to oppose the very idea of climate change. Well, that's becoming less and less tenable, but the idea that we don't do anything about it will persist because the carbon lobby is so, it pours so much money into the system so things have gotten even uglier in some regards but on the other hand uh, since 2008 nobody believes in capitalism the way they used to Mm -hmm. and in these years of drought and flood and and the east coast froze it was precisely the polar vortex that i described in 50 degrees below that's true it just hammered the east coast last those last two winters but especially this last one we're just out of um, are already um, featuring the very kind of things that i was talking about so Denial of climate change per se is pretty much going away, but the political fight over what to do about it is going to be very intense.
1: Well, it's it's uh, so this will be out in November from Bantam in the United States. And what's the title again? Green Earth. Green Earth. Yeah. Which which of course echoes with Green Mars and Red Mars and Blue Mars.
2: Yes, I think Bantam was thinking that. <laughs> and they will do their Funnily best enough. to. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, all things, you know, as much as I am enjoying these new novels, it is, um, it's, it's gratifying to report that the Mars books are just um, still very, very much the bestsellers amongst my work. And um, those and 2312 are, are together. The Internet seems to be amplifying them and they seem to be always uh, ticking along. And so if if Bantam can connect the Climate Trilogy onto the coattails by calling it Green Earth, I'm very much in favor. Absolutely.
0: Now that we've got a little bit of distance from it, uh, why do you think the world reacted so strongly to 2312?
2: I don't know. I am mystified. I, I think it might be... A, a, Orbit and Tim Holman's skills. He chose the title, and the title is, um, you know, reminiscent of 1984 or 2001, Uh, and it was, of course, 300 years uh, past the publication date, and people were, I think, intrigued. The cover was incredibly beautiful and suggestive of of an entire world, and also of a kind of healthy Um, vigorous, robust world. Uh, It was a beautiful illustration. So I think it has to do with uh, uh, packaging and publishing. And then in terms of the text, uh, my contribution uh, as part of that team, um, I was having a lot of fun. And the the Dos Passos method, which is controversial, and there are some people who just uh, hate it, but they sort of love to hate it. It's a great method for showing a whole society and for playing a lot of games at, on the level of the sentence and the page. And then I had a good love story at the heart of it, I guess. Um, yeah. uh, Swan and Ra-Ram are, are, are lovable characters and their story is always right at the center. And, but it, it's, a, it's still, when I add up all those factors, I'm still mystified as to how it, it all managed to come together so well in terms of its popularity. I'm really pleased, but it's still mysterious. I think there's
1: a fa- uh, I, I could throw out another idea which has to do with the history and development of recent science fiction, and that is uh, what what we were talking about earlier, that the, the solar system may be all we've got. It may be where we have to find our frontiers, our playgrounds, and so forth. And this has been emerging more and more in science fiction over the last 20 years. Paul McCauley's Quiet War series uh, deals mm-hmm. with the outer planets versus the inner planets uh, Al Reynolds has written there, there, there's a there's a kind of emerging consensus that hard science fiction is probably by um, by sheer uh, scientific logic going to be confined to our solar system and 2312 was the first novel that really covered the whole solar system it really showed us how we can do this on Mercury, how we can do this in various asteroids or uh, the, the 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 what do you call those things that are the hollowed out asteroids? Terraria. Terraria, yeah, a great term. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so, to some extent, it is a grand tour of a, a possible solar system, whereas all the other novels, which are very good, I love Paul McCauley's novels on this topic, deal with an assumption that that's happened. In other words, they're dealing with uh, essentially, frequently, the frontier versus the, you know, the west versus the east becomes the outer solar system versus the inner solar system. What, what the book seemed to me to be doing was celebrating this rather than treating it as a problem.
2: Yeah, thank you for that, and I, it reminds me of a, one of the most um, uh, wonderful reviews from my point of view was by Tom Shippey, and Tom Shippey, as you know, is a great uh, critic. Yeah. and a real uh, wonderful scholar of science fiction and fantasy, the great Tolkien uh, uh, writer, etc. And Shippy wrote a review in the Wall Street Journal that said something similar, which reminded me of it, that it was a celebration, and he said, there's so much that we could do. So it might be that um, 2312 was as a kind of a, a proleptic realism of staying within the laws of physics, staying within the solar system, and yet it's still spectacularly marvelous human future right um and uh, people turning into uh, sort of subspeciating like dogs into different kinds of humans but still uh, recognizably human in their emotional lives and in their basic dna so that you you sort of have the best of both and and you skip past this supposed singularity or any kind of mm-hmm. posthumanism uh you could just call it humanism or full humanity uh, where we're uh, it, it, it's it was very much a in the spirit of our lost friend Ian Banks, this uh, this sense of positive utopian futures. And I often thought of it be, as being a kind of Banksian thing. In fact, I had a, a, a term in there, uh, um, they had a, a, a terrarium that was um, unfinished. And they were inside it, and I, I said it was a, a space of almost Banksian majesty. Mm-hmm. And um, he forced me to remove that phrase because he was doing a blurb for the book and he didn't want it to look like log rolling. Uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. So,
2: uh, but what I found was there is no replacement for Banksian as an adjective. <laughs> <laughs> you, you take that word out of your vocabulary, and you would have to put in a, a, a long and inaccurate paragraph. Uh, so, maybe I'll put it back in in some uh, reprinting of the book of, to. Um,
1: yeah. That's uh, another thing that was appealing to, a, to another kind of readership. And uh, I, you're, uh, you're going to be the guest at WISCON over Memorial Day weekend, which may be before this actually airs. But the, f- the malleability of gender roles in that novel, I think, goes beyond what anybody had imagined in a single novel before.
2: Yes, I was pleased to try that out. That's very much an homage to Le Guin, and you know, I myself was a Mr. Mom, and i stayed at home, and I brought up my kids, and I I lived the cultural role of a mom. Uh Uh, And my wife as a scientist was gone all the time, and I saw what that was like, and I saw that I loved it, and I thought, oh my gosh, this must mean that I'm a very feminine person, and I think that's basically right. Um, But on the other hand, I love, you know, sports and and, uh, hiking in the mountains, and I'm like an 11-year-old boy most of the time. (laughs) So, um, how do you, how do you, um, what you have to think is that we're all, all of these things, but we've had cultural um, uh, rules as to what you can manifest and what you can't in your own character, which is usually encompassing of all these traits. And then also, I live near San Francisco, I have transgender friends, um, and I I go down there, and I feel like I'm in a proto-utopian society of people that are very accepting of all kinds of, of gender difference, and it's important that gender difference be uh, celebrated, mm-hmm. and I'm proud of San Francisco, you know, I'm in the provinces of San Francisco, and it's sort of my capital. Uh, so it, when I was writing 2312, I was thinking to myself of that great sentence in Le Guin, the king was pregnant, yeah. and a- how much I had relied on her thinking and on the left hand of dark- darkness when I was a, but a parent myself. Um, because I was not pregnant, but I was giving bottle feedings that resembled breastfeeding, and I was enjoying it hugely. So um, d- the 2312 was really the first time that I had an opportunity to... to uh, to play with that. And it's an important strand of science fiction because I think we can be proud of what we've done there as a community. That science fiction has always been accepting of difference and celebrating difference. So that you could go to con- conventions even in the 70s and have quite a bizarre array of humanity, and everybody was uh, on point
0: mm-hmm. and
2: deliberately trying to show to everyone that this was a place where it was Halloween every day, but it was also. The, lo- the, the internal laws of science fiction have always been uh, tolerance based. So it's something to be proud of.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm just avoiding saying anything about this year's Hugo Awards now. And maybe man. we should just avoid that also. I think other. we should. I think we should. Yeah, but tolerance is a tradition in science fiction fandom that I think should be celebrated, and we can leave it at that.
2: Yeah, I was distraught to see that. I feel like I feel bad for the poor people who organized the convention in Spokane because their party has been somewhat wrecked and it's hard to get uh, crawl back from that. Um, and it will be a bizarre night, but the community will survive that Absolutely. incident. It will just be part of the weird history.
0: <laughs> I was going to say just briefly, I mean, to me what made 2312 a success, what helps to make Aurora a success in its concluding phases is that there is a celebratory nature to it. I mean, particularly to, to 2312. It's fecund. It's full of life. It, I mean, when you read a lot of science fiction futures, they are bright lights glowing in the darkness, and that's it. Rather than a full, bright, lived-in future that you, you could want to live in. I mean, we don't seem to write as many futures that you would want to live in, whereas 2312 is a world where you go, if I was there, I think I'd be pretty comfortable living in it. I think I'd be delighted to have a chance to live in it.
2: Yeah, well, thank you. The, the whole utopian thing has been paying off. I can tell that although it felt uncomfortable and, uh, and gave me a lot of anxiety when I was younger to pursue a utopian uh, course for my novels, which is somewhat of an unnatural pushing of reality, um, it's paid off over the long haul as a way of thinking because the books are unusual, and uh, there's a, a, a good reasons for hope there always are, and literature doesn't often enough uh, focus on that hope or celebrate it. So it's been a, a long road, and I'm beginning to enjoy it more as I feel more relaxed and I have some of my, my big novels behind me. I can um, begin to play a little more, and it mm-hmm. seems like utopia and playfulness go together really well. So, uh, I was beaten down by the um, attempt to write about modern America in the climate trilogy, and um, it was a low point in my career and, and in America's political life, and, and probably a coincidence, but it felt really bad to me. Mm. But since then, it's been Galileo's dream, and then 2312 in Shaman and Aurora, and um I owe a lot to Tim Holden and to Orbit about that, and to Ralph Fitch and Anza for setting it up. But also, I think it's been a matter of hanging in there until uh, my own internal upturn has given me a chance to fool around. And I think the novels are benefiting from that uh, playfulness. And and I think 2312 was where it first came out. Although I must say, Galileo's Dream was the one that was the turning point for me, where I began began to feel like I was having a blast. And that's partly because of Galileo himself being such a hilarious character. Mm. So he was the turning of the tide. But I think it was also 2312 where I could really feel the tide running in a good direction.
1: And I think it was Shaman that really struck me at the time as, as, as a novel, which it, it, on the one hand it seemed to come out of left field. Things that happened in the novel parallel earlier novels. But... My my initial reaction before reading it, picking it up, was he's doing anything he wants to now, because this makes no sense at all otherwise.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I've always wanted to do the Paleolithic. I've been interested in it personally, but I never have felt the freedom. And it was Tim Holman who said, yeah, it's time. Go for that one and let me do it. Uh, you need a, a an enabling editor, someone who's encouraging in the literal sense of giving you courage. And that's what Tim has done for me. And I was so pleased to get to do Shame. And it had been in my head, you know, 20 or 30 years, but it never seemed right until that moment. And I'm glad I waited as long as I did, because there were things I couldn't have brought to it until that time when I wrote it. And it would not have been the book it, it is if I had tried it earlier in my life. I needed some things to have happened. And so it's nice to feel that things are now coming in their time. and. Um, you know, I don't think I'll do that many more novels. Uh, I want to write a Sierra book, I want to try a play, and then I want to try to write really short novels, like maybe novellas. Mm-hmm. So I'm I, I'm contracted and intending to write three more, you know, chunky science fiction novels and then pause and, and think things over and try some different things. So even that is a kind of freedom where I'm thinking about, well, uh, you know, um, what do I do here? And and the idea that I don't have to go on forever, that it's not perpetual, that I don't have an infinity of stories in me, mm-hmm. and I don't want to repeat myself. So each time I, I finish off a subgenre, it's as if I've chopped off a branch on the tree that I'm in, and eventually, you know, I'm going to fall down. But <laughs> in the meantime, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun. Excellent.
0: Well... We'd normally wind up in about an hour, and we've gone over a little bit. Uh, it seems to me there's a lot we could come back to, and I'd love to uh, have a chance to maybe sit down with you and Tim Holman together and talk about what you're doing. Uh, so we might do that sometime after uh, Aurora has come out. But for the moment, thank you very much, Stan, for taking the time. We really, really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation, and we look forward to seeing how Aurora's going to be received.
2: Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Gary. Really okay. fun, as always. And if we get a chance later to talk about the end of Aurora, you know, with Tim or without, that would be a lot of fun. fun. There are things to say there that we just don't, we, we can't say right now. Yeah. So I appreciate your um, holding off on the spoilers, and um, it's really been a
0: blast. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. And Gary, as always, I'll talk to you next week. I'll talk to you next week, absolutely. Okay.